we are getting back into the book of Esther, and we are looking at, really, Esther being chosen as queen. It's really this marriage, right? Um, it's a very dysfunctional marriage, as we'll see. Um, you know, as I was thinking about that, the, the correlation I see is that we are married to Christ. We are the bride. The church is his bride. And today is also Palm Sunday. Now, as I was, I was praying, I was thinking, I was receiving from the Lord, and something he brought to my mind was, you know, on Palm Sunday, it's this moment where, just as was prophesied, Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and the people declare him as Messiah. And they lay down these palm branches before him as he comes in riding in on a donkey. And this was prophesied. And that really was in my mind like a proposal to his bride in that moment, right? He was sending out the invites. He was, uh, you know, getting ready for this wedding. And ultimately, one week later, you know, he would rise from the dead, sealing that marriage, making it official. And so today we're going to be looking at this very dysfunctional marriage system and, and, and marriage that the Persians had. But I think there's a lot we can learn from it. Um, there's a lot of personal application we can learn from it. And there's a lot we can learn um, really about the true marriage that we see between Christ and the church. And so I'm excited for that this morning. Um, but it's been a few weeks. It's been five. There have been five Sundays since the last time we were in Esther. Some of you were like, what's Esther? What are you talking about? We're in the middle of a book. Uh, Others of you maybe just have kind of forgotten what um, those first two sermons on Esther chapter 1 were all about. Yeah, we, so we did take a break and we finished chapter 1 and today we're going to be going over chapter 2. But I want to recap you guys just a little bit on where we're at in this series um, to bring some context to it. So the book of Esther takes place um, after the Israelites were freed from exile. They had been a nation of their own at one point, but because of the sins of the nation, God sent them into Babylonian exile. And then the Persians defeated the Babylonians, and the Persians freed the Jews to go back to their homeland. But we find that some of them, it had been 70 full years, some of them were so entrenched in the culture that they were in, that going back to their homeland maybe wasn't appealing to them, or important to them. Um, Their lives were now here. Um, And so we find some of these Jewish characters still living um, in Persia. They have not returned to their home. And so we see that the Jews have now been freed. Um, Xerxes is the king. He's the king of Persia, but more importantly, he's basically the king of the world. And in the first chapter, we see that Xerxes is this man who, he really views himself as God. He likes to be worshipped like a god. He likes to lavish himself as though he were a god. So Xerxes would throw these huge, huge parties. Um, We read about this party that was six months long. Can you imagine that? Six months long. Uh, That was just full of all sorts of debauchery. And in this six-month party, they're having so much fun that apparently they wanted to have another party for seven more days. And so they're partying, and during this time, 
Xerxes asks his wife, now he has a lot of wives and he also has concubines, but he would have kind of a main bay, like <laughs> one girl that was like his trophy wife. Aaron's like squinting, like, why did you have to say that, Stephen? Uh, <laughs> uh, he would have a trophy wife, his main girl, okay? Is that better, Aaron? Do you approve of that? Uh, his main chick. And so he would have her kind of by his side. Um, normally this would be the most beautiful woman in all of the kingdom, at least in his eyes, and this would be his main wife, and she would have this kind of more important role than all of his other wives. And so he asked his wife, his, his, his queen Vashi, to come out, and if you look at the verses, it seems as though he's, he's asking her to come out in nothing but her crown. So he's asking his wife to come out and display all of her beauty for the whole kingdom, for all the people at this party, um, for a bunch of drunk people. And so I believe that she rightfully refuses to do so. And this upsets Xerxes. And it upsets some of the other rulers because they believe that she's setting an example that women can say no. Uh, which is just horrible, right? And so, in their culture, you can't say no to your husband. You have to obey what he says, do what he says. And so, they're like, you need to basically remove her as queen. You need to remove her as your, as your wife. And you need to find another one. Another woman who will... Maybe be more obedient. Maybe who's even better looking. These are kind of what they're thinking. This is the context that we find ourselves now in chapter 2. So let's go ahead and read. Okay, so chapter 2, verse 1. After these things, when the anger of King Ashwaris had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men, you'll catch that, the king's young men, who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. Doesn't that sound like the advice of young men? (laughs) Uh, And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their... Cosmetics be given um, to them, and let their young, let the young women who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashi. This pleased the king, and he did so. So, uh, I think it's important to note who he is deciding to get advice from. Some young guys who uh, apparently are very lustfully minded, and so their advice is. Let's just get a bunch of people to go out there and seek out for the most beautiful woman in all the land. And we'll bring all the most beautiful ones we can find, and then we'll bring them before you, and then you can pick, and you can find the most beautiful girl ever to replace that disobedient queen you currently have. And this pleased him. (laughs) And he liked the idea of having every gorgeous version in the land come to him. Um... I believe we need to be careful on who we're getting advice from. There are too many times where we are getting advice from the wrong people, especially on relationships. Who are you getting advice from? Get good counsel. We'll come back to that, but it's an important note to make, is that he is getting counsel from young, immature men who probably aren't married or probably have horrible marriages. <laughs> 
<laughs> uh, he is not getting wise counsel. Let's continue reading here, verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jekoina, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar's king of Babylon had carried away. So we find this man named Mordecai. And we're going to see a lot more of Mordecai throughout the book. He's one of the main characters. Mordecai is a Jew, and he is from the tribe of Benjamin. But he is living where? He's living in the capital of Persia. He did not return with many of the Jews to Israel. So what does this tell us about Mordecai? Mordecai is not a devout Jew. He may be a Jew. He may believe in the God of Yahweh. He may believe in the God of Israel, but he is not devout. The traditions and the law are not important to him. He was immersed in the culture of Persia. He had maybe changed many of his viewpoints, and the things that should be important to him as an Israelite are not important anymore. Maybe he had a good business. We don't know exactly what was going on, but there were things that kept him there. He didn't return as they should have. So he's not a devout Jew. Though he may believe and though he may be a decent man, he was not devout and maybe some of the things that should have been important to him were not. He had been maybe conformed to some of the Persian culture. So let's continue reading here. Verse 7. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, For she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So Esther is an orphan, and her relative, Mordecai, takes her in, adopts her, and raises her um, as his own child. Um, And apparently Esther is very attractive, which is important because of these next verses. Verse 8, so when, the king's, so when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther, who was taken into the king's palace, sorry, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young women pleased him and won favor, and he quickly provided her, Uh, her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. So Esther is chosen because she is very attractive, and then she is one of these seven girls. Apparently, it's kind of been narrowed down to a few of the most attractive, the ones who seemed the most pleasant uh, for the king to um, pick from. But we also see here that Esther is keeping a secret, a secret that Mordecai commanded her to keep, and that was to not reveal that she was an Israelite to not reveal um, her heritage, that she was a Jew. Now, 
why did Mordecai command her to do this? Why did Mordecai command her to keep her true identity a secret? You might think maybe it was because of persecution. Um, You might think, well, maybe, you know, they didn't like Jews. Maybe she wouldn't have been picked. These might be good um, thoughts, but they're not accurate because you have to understand they are not being persecuted at this time. In fact, the exact opposite is happening for the Jews at this time in this text. We are going to see some persecution come up in Esther. But at this time, there is no persecution of the Jews. Not in Persia. The opposite is happening. They are actually showing the Jews favor by letting them go back and rebuild their temple and rebuild a wall around their their holy city. They're actually getting a lot of favor from the Persian Empire because God is using the Persian Empire to actually benefit the Jews. So there is actually no reason for Mordecai to tell her this other than some kind of cultural shame. I believe that oftentimes there is more shame in your religion or heritage sometimes when there is not persecution. I think there is more shame about being a Christian in America than there is in countries where you're being persecuted. The lack of persecution really turns a lot of times into more of a cultural shame. So what we have in America is no one's persecuting Christians. I mean... You could argue for maybe some kind of uh, mockery, right? But I mean, really, like, compared to the rest of the world, there is no real persecution going on here. Yet, I believe you would find the American church much more ashamed of their religion, of their Jesus, than you would in persecuted countries. Persecution, what it does is it weeds out those who don't actually believe, or who are in it for the wrong reasons. Persecution brings out those who actually believe and actually would stand for what is right, and kind of removes those um, who wouldn't. You see, when there's persecution, saying that you're a Christian, or in this case, if you were saying that you were a Jew, means something. You're drawing a line in the sand that could result in your death watching a movie recently. I didn't get to finish it. Uh, and then I rented it in the, on Amazon, and I finished the ending. I got to rent it again. Kind of, <laughs> kind of frustrating. <laughs> but the first half I saw, and I really liked it, it's a movie called uh, Silence, and it's about religious persecution. Uh, Christians being martyred and asked to step on a picture of Jesus and, and denounce Christ. And there's a one point in there they're talking, and he said, are you Christian? He says, no, Christians get killed. You see, persecution makes you decide something. Do I want to stand for that or not? You see, maybe everything else about Christianity seemed appealing, but the persecution did not. And so, I think in the lack of persecution, there's so much freedom that what instead happens is some sort of cultural shame that people then don't want to say I'm a I'm a Christian. I don't want to stand for something. I'm afraid to tell my coworkers. I'm afraid to bring that up with that family member because I'll just get mocked or they won't like me. That's not real persecution. Your life's not on the line. That's just your own um, part needing to work on some stuff. So I believe that at this time in this book, there was no 
persecution for the Jews, just maybe some sort of cultural shame. Oh, those Jews, they believe some weird stuff, or, oh, you know, they don't participate in the same things that we do as Persians. So if you were a Jew, maybe you would just have less friends. Maybe people would just like you a little less. Like, this is what we're looking at. It's not some sort of crazy persecution. But Mordecai tells her, hey, don't tell anyone that you're a Jew. And so she doesn't. She obeys him. Um, And then we'll see here uh, as we continue. Um, Verse 12. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Asherah's after being 12 months under the regulations for women since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of mirth and six months with spices and ointments for women. When the young women went into the king in this way, whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Jazgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. So we see that these seven best are basically... Soaked in perfume for 12 months. (laughs) Like, this is kind of funny. What we believe about wine, the Persian men apparently believed about women. (laughs) Like, you gotta, you know, with some soaking, (laughs) put them in a barrel for a while, uh, for a year, and then it tastes better. Uh, Like, it doesn't make any sense. But for 12 months, they're just being beautified and soaked with ointments and everything. And so, they do this, and then he basically sleeps with all seven of these women. So, there's no way around it. It's just a weird passage. Um, But you see, the culture's views of women was something to be consumed. Right? A wife was just simply a product that you can beautify, that you can soak in ointments, (laughs) and eventually she's ready for you, you know. She's just something to be consumed. He didn't view his wife as a relationship. He viewed her as something to be consumed and to show off. Um, Maybe our immediate reaction to that is negative, but I think our culture does that a lot too. I think our culture views women as something to be consumed in many cases. That's why the hookup culture that exists is so prevalent in our culture. Um, Sleeping around, there's no real meaning to it. But more than that, pornography. It's just about consuming. It's not about relationship. And there's a big problem with that. We'll come back to that more later. But we see in the Persian culture, and I believe in our own culture, instead of marriage being about a loving relationship, it's about um, a selfish desire to consume. Verse 15. When the term came for Esther, the daughter of Abeha, the son of Mordecai, sorry, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, She asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charged of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. 
And when Esther was taken to King Ashurus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all of the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Ashi. Then the king gave a great feast for all of his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with the royal generosity. So Esther is liked by the king more than all the other girls. And so he chooses Esther as his new main wife, his new queen to stand by his side to wear the crown. So Esther is chosen for this place. Um, as you read this, um, you know, as we will read in a lot of parts of the book of Esther, there's more of not to do's than to do's. <laughs> I don't believe that there is a lot of good example here in this passage. It's more about looking at what wasn't done right and learning how to do things right instead. Um, I believe that all three of these characters in this moment are making a lot of mistakes. Mordecai is maybe a good man, but he has commanded her to keep her identity a secret. She is participating in that. Um, She's participating in all of this. And then he, of course, is an abuser of women. Xerxes is the abuser of women, King Asherah. And so, in all of this, what we see is just something that happened. A way of doing things in the Persian Empire. Um, And... Through all of this, Esther is chosen as queen. But here's the thing that is so important for us to know, as we will learn more about next week and in coming weeks in the book of Esther, is that God uses our very messy circumstances that oftentimes we put there in our own lives, or it's maybe there because of our sin, yet he chooses to use our um, sin and brings it about in a way that will ultimately bring out for his glory. It does not excuse sin does not make certain things okay, but God will use it nonetheless because he's an all-powerful God who can do that. So in this, this weird marriage, this um, marriage is really just based on lust. God is still going to use that to save his people from persecution that will come by using Esther. So God uses sinful circumstances for his own glory in the end. And so, it does not excuse, and I would say that again, if, if you're in certain places that you have put yourself in, um, it does not excuse your sin if God somehow uses that for glory. Now, we can thank him for that and worship him for doing that, but ultimately, it doesn't give us an excuse to do um, anything that is wrong. And so we come back here. She's made the wife. Um, she's made the queen. And that's kind of going on. And then we, as we learned before, Mordecai would kind of hang out um, and go into the courts and everything to kind of just check in on Esther because he cared about her and wanted to know what's going on. And one of these times, we see um, Mordecai discover something kind of important that will be really important for us next, um, this next few chapters. Uh, verse 19, it says, Now, When the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred 
or her people, as Mordecai commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai, just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, um, Big Thang and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Asherus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. And he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of Chronicles in the presence of the king. So Mordecai's hanging out in the king's gate. He's probably checking in on Esther, waiting to hear from her, see how she's doing. During that time, maybe he's sitting somewhere where these two guys can't see him. And they're very upset. These are two eunuchs, so they're close to the king. They're maybe uh, helping him out in different areas, serving him in different areas. But he has done something that has made them both angry. And so they are plotting against the king. And Mordecai overhears it, he reports it to Esther, and Esther reports it to the king um, in Mordecai's name. And then the king's life is saved, these men are hung, and Mordecai's name is written down in the king's chronicles, his records, as a man who did something good for the king. So what we see here is that Esther has been placed in a certain um, important role that allows her to voice opinions to King Xerxes, and that Mordecai is a man who, in the king's records, is to be remembered um, fondly or to be honored or respected. All of this will be incredibly important in the coming weeks, because what we're going to see is a lot of plots happening in the rest of the book of Esther, and these two things will be really important as we continue. Um, so we see that she has now been put in this place as queen, and to some extent, she has the ability to voice opinions to King Xerxes. And so we see this marriage. So let's talk about marriage for a little while. Um, marriage is pretty great. It really is. It's pretty great. Um, I remember being engaged to my beautiful wife, Melissa, and you would get a mix of opinions from people. You get a mix. And it would really annoy me some of the things that people would say. Even if it was a joke, it would really annoy me. You know, ball and chain, or you're stuck with her for life. You know, are you sure that's the thing you want to be with forever, you know? And, or other people just, they would continually be like, hey, do you just need to know, like, marriage is really hard. Like, just be... Just be aware that you're getting yourself into something really difficult. Like almost kind of like warning you in a way that maybe you should get out. And it really, really bugged me. And I didn't really say anything to people at the time, but I always be like, I'd be like, well, maybe it's hard for you because you're a jerk. <laughs> you know? Uh, and that's the kind of thoughts I would have. But marriage is an amazing thing. It is actually a gift from God. God designed marriage. He gave us, marriage, before sinning even existed in the world, God intended on there being marriage. That there, He intended that there would be this relationship between a man and woman. This was his gift to us. It is a very, very good thing. It's an amazing thing. However, you don't have to look far to see bad marriages, do you? 
Um, you look throughout our country and throughout the world, there are many, many examples of marriage being done in a wrong way. Whether it's abuse or adultery or if it's um, just people who are constantly fighting and clearly don't like each other. You don't have to look far. You can see that marriage um, can easily become something that isn't so great, even though it is given to us as something to be um, celebrated, as something to, to enjoy. It's a gift from God. But what you need to know about marriage is that it is a good, a good gift. It is that. God wants men and women to get married, and he decreed how it should be and what it should look like. So I want to make a few points about marriage. You know, it's between a man and a woman. The Bible is incredibly clear about that. It's not between a man and a man or a woman and a woman. The touchy subject in our culture right now, it doesn't matter. Culture changes, the word of God does not. Um, you know, I did not plant this church to appeal to people. I planted this church because God commanded us to teach the word and to spread the gospel. And as a pastor, that is my role, to share the gospel and to preach the truth of Scripture. It's not to bend to what people want to hear. It's not to bend to the culture. It's not the role of a pastor. It's not the role of a Christian. You know, we have to stand for what's right. Even when, you know, people are going to call you names for standing against same-sex marriage. Now, it may be called marriage by government. That doesn't mean it's called marriage by God. And so for the believer, what marriage is, is between a man and a woman, and it's a good gift. It's interesting. The only thing in Scripture, other than God, that we are told to hold fast to is your spouse. There's a term in Scripture, and I love it. Um, I just love the term because it's a powerful one. And it's used often of God or his, his word, the word of God. And it's to hold fast to the word of God. When I started this church um, over a year ago, we started with the book of Hebrews, and I titled that series, Hold Fast. Because we see this command to grip on to the truth, to grip on to God himself, and to not let go. It's a, it's a term used for sailors when you're in the midst of a storm, you grab something and you hold on to it for dear life. And we are commanded by God to hold on to him and to his word like that. The only other thing he tells us to hold on to like that is marriage. And it's important to realize that because there are storms in marriage. There are storms in life. And God commands that we hold on to him in storms and that you hold on to your spouse in storms. He doesn't use the word hold fast in any other context in scripture. And so marriage is defined by God as a good gift. He, he specifies how it should look. And he tells us that we must hold on to it for dear life. So that means that terms like falling out of love or drifting apart are really just nice terms for selfishness. They're really just nice terms for pride. 
They're nice terms for lust. They're nice terms for anger, abuse, or laziness. In a good marriage, you don't just drift apart. That's not a real thing. If you actually look at those people's marriages when they're saying that, there's a lot of sin that led to them saying that. There was a lot of specifically selfishness that led to that. They drifted apart because they didn't love each other. They loved themselves. And that's why they drifted apart. That's why they started feeling far from each other. And so, God wants us to hold fast. And ultimately, marriage is a symbol for um, the relationship that Christ has with the church. Jesus lays his life down for his bride. Jesus loves his bride. He gave his own life for that marriage to happen. And in marriage we can begin to love each other as Christ loves the church, which is powerful. And in a good marriage, you're actually showing Christ's love for his church. A good marriage can be a good gospel presentation, which is pretty cool. A good marriage is a good evangelistic tool because it represents how much Jesus loves us and what he's done for us. And the kind of relationship that we can have with him, the closeness that we can have with him. It's pretty cool. And I really believe that marriage is hard for selfish people and easy for selfless people. I really believe that. Now, unfortunately, it only takes one of the two to be selfish for it to be hard. But when you have two selfless people, marriage is pretty easy. We have two selfish people. Marriage is really hard. Uh, and sometimes that's just day-to-day or week-to-week. Uh, it's hard that week because we were both selfish. <laughs> it was easy the other weeks because we were selfless and put each other first. So I have three application points from Esther chapter 2 that we can learn about marriage. One is get good counsel. As we saw, Xerxes was getting terrible advice. And it's easy to criticize Xerxes, but are you getting good advice? Who are you going to when you have questions about a boyfriend or a spouse? A girlfriend. A girl you're interested in, or a guy you're interested in. Who are you getting advice from? Are you getting advice from your young, dumb friends? (laughs) Next time somebody tries to give you relationship advice, ask them some questions. (laughs) Okay, why should I listen to you? Are you married? What's your marriage like? Before you just start speaking into my life, let me look at yours. (laughs) Be careful who you're getting advice from, whether or not it's for your marriage or just simply for dating or people you're interested in. Get advice from wise counsel, from people who have a good marriage, who love Jesus, who you've seen their marriage and they selflessly put themselves below the other. Those are the people you want to listen to about relationships, not your young, dumb friends who don't know anything. Xerxes listened to these young guys who were really just concerned about their lustful desires and King Xerxes' lustful desires. And then they gave him some advice and he rolled with it. Get advice from people who actually have something good to offer. Not from people who either have no experience or bad experience. 
Their marriage is a wreck. Don't get advice from them. In Proverbs 12, 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. Just listen to good counsel. Put yourself under good counsel, especially for something as important as who you will marry or who you are married to. This is not something you should just take lightly and decide everything for yourself. Get good, wise counsel from people who you respect. My second application point is, it's relationship, not consumption. You know, I've heard marriage compared um, to a lot of things. One being something that you consume. So it's like, are you sure you want to drink Pepsi the rest of your life? That is a horrible way to view marriage. Someone says that to you, you need to start questioning them, especially if they're married. You're like, really? That's how you view your wife? You view your wife as one flavor for the rest of your life? You just view her as something to be consumed? Marriage is about a loving, selfless, amazing relationship. The type of relationship that Jesus wants to have with each one of us, he wants you to have with your spouse. To love to lay your life down for them, to be humble. Jesus is the example of a good spouse. And it's not about which flavor you have for the rest of your life. It's not about which meal, you know. It's not something to be consumed. It's a person to have a real, true relationship with. The person you will be closest with to. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is how spouses are to love each other. I'll say something that um, is a challenge. This is a challenge. Husbands, it begins with you. And you need to realize that. The Bible says that it begins with you, that you are to love her as Christ loved the church first. She is to respond that way. But you were to do it first. If you get in a fight, who says sorry first if you're both in the wrong? You do. As a man, you step up and you start loving her as Christ loved the church. God commanded it to be that way, that husbands would do that first. It's your responsibility. When you get in a fight, you're the one who needs to go and make it right. You're the one who needs to continue the conversation instead of going to bed angry. It's men who have this responsibility to initiate this. And as women, you could be thinking, well, why is it men? You don't want that responsibility. (laughs) You really don't. Because men don't want it either. We would love to hand that over to you. Trust me, there's no man in here going, oh, great. I'm so glad for that responsibility. We would love to be like, no, let's say the women have to love us. Like When she starts loving me like Jesus, when she puts her life down for me, then I'll start loving her. But that's not the way that God designed it. Again, God created marriage. He designed it as a good gift, and that means he gets to specify how it looks. It's his gift. And so he says that men should love their wives as Christ loved the church. It starts with them, but trust me, when a man starts showing that humility and love, And the woman will respond with it too. 
And sometimes I think, you know, being kind, being loving, um, comes easier to women. In many cases, I see that women, um, some of those aspects come easier. So I sometimes wonder if Jesus says men need to do it first because if women did it first, men just wouldn't do it. I just wonder sometimes. But when you're in a relationship where you really do love each other as Christ loved the church, can you imagine that marriage? That's the marriage that lasts. That's the marriage that you look at and you go, wow, they're just awesome together. They love each other. They're a team. Look at all the things they've done together, they've accomplished together. But selfish, selfish marriages just don't get anywhere. My, my third point is this. Clean out your closet. Um, I was watching an episode of Friends some time ago. And there is an episode where Monica and Chandler, two of the main characters, are married. And they've been married for a while, and they're, they're living together and, and everything. And uh, she's a neat freak. Monica's a neat freak. In fact, she, does, she doesn't like things to be clean. She actually enjoys cleaning so many episodes. She'll go and clean other people's apartments or things like that because she's just so OCD about being clean. She wants everything to be clean all the time. But there's an episode where Chandler finds a closet that he's never seen before. He's like, what is this closet? And it's locked, and he can't get in. And this really starts to bother him. Why is there a closet in her apartment that I don't, know what's in there, and it's locked. I can't get in. Well, he finally gets it open, and it just spills out. It's just a closet filled with mess. And she just has this messy part of her apartment tucked away and locked up. And there's a scene where he confronts her about this, and he's like, you're disgusting. (laughs) Like, I thought you were clean, but you're disgusting. You have a dirty part of your life. As, uh, okay, you look at Xerxes. Xerxes didn't have a closet. He just had a messy apartment, right? Like, this guy was just a mess. He wanted to be God. He wanted to be worshipped as God. He was just filled with debauchery and lust and all of it. His sin was just out there for all to see. But for others, maybe they seem like good people, but they might have a closet somewhere. They might have a closet somewhere where they've cleaned up everything else, but this one part, they like it, they keep it, they lock it. And there might be a point in your marriage where you point to the other one and you say, you're disgusting. There might be a point in your marriage where you learn something about them or they just have that one thing they do all the time and it drives you nuts or this continual selfishness or you know, they could be watching porn or whatever it is. There will be a point in all marriages where you look at them and there's a sin that you just really hate. And you're going to look at them and say, you're disgusting. (laughs) You're disgusting. But in marriage, I believe God would have us open that closet up. Instead of pointing at each other saying, you're disgusting, you have that spouse to help you clean it up. All right? Ideally, you would go into marriage sinless, but you're not going to be able to do that. <laughs> Ideally, like there's things, especially if it's more serious than that, you would take care of before you got married, so you're not bringing that in. But 
truth is that most people will bring in some junk into their marriage. And it's not about hiding it. It's about confessing it and allowing your spouse to work on it with you to help you clean it up. We see, you know, the Bible says, confess your sins and you will be healed. There is power in confession. There's power in confession to God, but there's power in confession with those you are close to, especially your spouse. So if you're married, if you've got a closet you need to clean out, get your spouse to help you. If there's a closet you're hiding away, show it to your spouse. Confess it and get them to help you work on it. If you're not married, I would strongly recommend showing them the closet before you get married. Now, that's tricky. Maybe there's some stuff you're like, ah, she won't marry me then. <laughs> or vice versa. He won't marry me if he knows, that. he knows that. It is better to take care of it before. Now, that's not first date talk. <laughs> well, like, hey, after dinner, do you want to go see my closet? Uh, you definitely will not have a second date if you do that. But before you're going to get married, maybe before you propose, or maybe it's after you propose, but before you get married, have some real confession with each other. Have some real talks with one another. So that you can go into marriage stronger. And that it's not, you know, one year, ten years later that you're finding out things and discovering things and have to work on things. Do it before As it is in a relationship to Christ, as we are his bride as a church, um, we try to have closets. But Psalms 98 says, you spread out our sins before you, our our secret sins, and you see them all. You know what's amazing about Jesus? He sees your closets even if you don't confess them but he still wanted to marry you. He still wanted a relationship with you, and he was still willing to lay his life down for you. And it's Palm Sunday, the day we celebrate the week before his resurrection, that he came into Jerusalem, and in a sense, he proposed to the world. And in a sense, he invited us all to be his wife, and he invited us all to attend this wedding ceremony. He said, I'm here Invitation is open, but he, he did that knowing your worst moments. He did that knowing your worst sins. He did that knowing that it may take you years to confess some things. But he still loves you. He still wants relationship with you. He still wanted to marry you. He was still willing to lay his life down for you. He still wanted to spend eternity with you. That is the amazing thing about Jesus Christ, isn't it? So we can't hide anything from him. So we need to confess. We need to work on our sin. We need to allow Jesus to come into those darkest parts of us and work on our closet, to work on those dark, hidden parts of our heart, because he knows they're there. But until we confess it and are open to him working on it, he won't be able to. And then, with your spouse, practically, or your future spouse, practically. Be prepared that when you're becoming one, it's really important to work on those sins with them. And spouses are great for that. Like, even on, like, everyday things, right? They'll just point stuff out. (laughs) 
hey, I really don't like the way you said that. Like, <laughs> you know? But you become better people if you are humble and help each other. And I believe that God wants all of us to have amazing marriages, to have these amazing relationships. And uh, it comes with a lot of honesty and, and communication. Um, as I was asking Melissa if she, some of her thoughts on this, and the one thing she was like is, the one advice I could ever give people about marriage was communication. And that seems cliche, but really talk to each other. Really address problems as you see them, not to allow grudges and everything to build up. Um, talk, communicate. Don't hold things in. Don't lock things up. Confess, talk, be real with each other. Um, you know what's cool is, is when that is operating in a healthy sense. We have that with Jesus too where we can talk to him and be real with him and confess to him and communicate with him and hear from him. And so I would, uh, I would just challenge you all, turn to Jesus with your darkest hearts. Turn to Jesus with those secrets. And also be ready to do that with a spouse too, to confess your sin, to work on your sin, to not be arrogant. Instead, be, to be humble. Let's go ahead and pray. Jesus, uh, thank you for all that you have done for us. Lord, you proposed to us. You died for us. You rose from the dead. You, you did all of that knowing who we really were, knowing what a wretch we are. God, thank you for all that you have done. We are so unworthy, God. We are so unworthy because of our sin. You love us so much that you propose to us. Lord, I pray that we would, as we sing these songs of worship, just have a humble moment before you, Lord. Um, that we would realize the significance of what you have done and how much you love us, Lord. Not take it lightly. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.